0: Dueling Genre Productions presents... Oh my God, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities.
1: I can move things with my mind.
0: Oh my God, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly.
1: Super senses.
0: What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes.
1: Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here! I'm going to make you all into superheroes! Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful.
0: After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city
1: what real passion truly is.
0: And the underdogs.
1: You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means there are our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that?
0: Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers.
1: You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs.
0: Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere.
1: everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing susan vance and david huxley from the film bringing up baby and joining the discussion is protagonist podcast co-pilot andrew dorowski welcome andrew hello you are always here just not always (laughs) uh the you know co-discussant during uh the the episode uh, but yes. glad to have you on to talk about Bringing Up Baby, which is a 1938 film directed by Howard Hawks and starring Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. It tells the story of a socialite heiress and an absent-minded paleontologist falling in love during a very strange day that involves chasing a leopard through Connecticut. The screenplay was written by Dudley Nichols, Hager Wilde, Robert McGowan, and Gertrude Purcell, and was based on a short story by Hagar Wilde. Now, Andrew, do you remember when you first watched Bringing Up Baby?
0: So our parents liked this movie. I think I saw the VHS when I was around 10 years old um, and didn't have an adequate appreciation for film in general and black and white films in particular. And so I probably didn't engage with it fully. And it's, it's really um, a very fast film. And so I don't know if at 10 years old I would have been able to keep up with it.
1: Particularly the humor is just rapid fire. It is machine gun paced dialogue. Um, but without, yeah, there is no room to laugh. Yeah, without the pauses for laughter. So um, like one complaint about network TV sitcoms is often well, like the laugh track. But what the laugh track does when, when it's an actual studio audience is it gives the performers times to pause after joke lands before the next line, line of dialogue. With this one, like if you're laughing, you're missing because they're just running straight ahead. they're just moving forward and it is so witty some of the dialogue that is written that like you want to pause and appreciate it but you can't because you know something else funny is coming up next and you really want to hear the next line
0: yeah or or sometimes you are your brain is catching up with the humor and you're hearing like the third joke and your brain finally says wait that first joke was really funny
1: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um and I think I'm similar to you. I don't remember when I first watched it. It was just one that my parents, yeah, you know, our parents had on VHS. So we, we both saw it, uh, you know, and, but I remember vividly showing it to some friends in high school. Uh, like that's the first time I remember like, like that I could actually remember, but I know I'd seen it before then. Cause I, you know, why would I have been recommending it to my friends if I hadn't seen it before? Um, and it is an interesting experience. I remember to watch it because there's that like pause uh, at the beginning of like uh, like I'm getting a feel for this, and then you just kind of have to realize that these are uh, in some ways like human actors playing cartoon characters. Like everyone is very broad. Everyone is a character. Yeah. Right. Um, and w- but once you're into that world, I think it all works. Like it it does function really well. Um. But but I, it does take a little bit of of like easing into it. I think.
0: I remember watching it as an adult and realizing that I didn't really remember a lot of the film, even though I definitely did remember the film. If that makes sense, like yeah. I remember, you know, big things. It's like, okay, well, there's the leopard and the leopard's named Baby, and there's Cary Grant, and and he's this kind of silly paleontologist nerd guy. I'm like that's funny, and even though he's like he's like tall and and handsome and broad. Like, this doesn't seem like a nerd, but um, that's beside the point. Um, And then the woman is, is kind of pushy and all these things. Like, I remember about the movie, but I realized that it's like, oh, I don't remember what is in this movie. Like, I didn't remember stuff in the jail. I didn't remember half of the stuff at the house. I remember him. I remember Cary Grant, like, standing on the side of a car as it drives away and being like, oh, that's funny.
1: Yeah. Um... All right let's let's run through some trivia, and then we can get to some of those plot points that you're referencing because it it is a delightful film to go watch. I hadn't watched it in years um, before this. oh, and I wanted to say, uh I, I you rented it through Amazon Prime, right? to watch it uh at at some point, I did yeah, uh I, I did not okay. rewatch it for this because I'd watched it in the last few months. Okay, um, I just did a search on our smart TV, and it said, if you download this channel called Hollywood Romances, you can watch it for free. It just means, like, every 25 minutes, there's, like, one 30-second commercial that just interrupt. Like, it's not timed. Like, What's a line not- of dialogue gets cut, gets cut off to show you a, a Papa John's commercial or whatever. Um, but... <laughs> but it was free you know so i just you know uh if you have uh any smart TVs with streaming apps you you can track this one down very easily it turns out because i was planning on going to rent it from the library but our library is shut down at the time of this recording um, so some trivia this movie was a flop when it came out um and katherine hepburn was even labeled box office poison which seems odd considering her reputation now um as one it doesn't of the actresses like the Catherine Hollywood Hepburn history. I know. Yes. Um it, and apparently didn't really gain appreciation or a fan following until it started to air on television in the 50s and 60s. Um and that's when it uh it, it like gained traction to the point that um it is very well respected. Now it was added to the national film registry, which um, is meant to preserve the great works of filmmaking in American history for all time. That was added to the registry in 1990. Um, It was ranked 88th on the AFI list of 100 greatest American films of all time. And that's from their 2007, you know, they update that every, every 15 years or so. Um, But it was number 88 of all films (laughs) ever. On that list. Um, And it also. It appears. uh, Like I saw it was like in an entertainment weekly list. Of the greatest Hollywood films. It was in the top uh, 50. Uh, So so it's definitely gained a reputation. After initially um, failing to find an audience. In uh, 1938. Is that when I said it came out? Yeah 1938. Um, We mentioned that there's a leopard. In this. uh, And you watch some of the scenes. And you're like is this safe? Uh, Which different era there was a trainer just off camera with a whip um, at all times when the leopard was um, on set uh and reportedly catherine hepburn was very comfortable with the leopard so you see a couple scenes where like the leopard just comes up and nuzzles right up against her uh and but cary grant was not he was terrified of the of the leopard and so uh there's a few scenes where like the leopard is playing with his feet and those are always close-ups or when when you his character is touching the leopard and it's just close ups of his hand because he wouldn't go near it. Um, there's there's a few wide shots where you see him but most shots of Cary Grant and the leopard you can tell are rear project, projection if you're looking for it where they were using previously filmed footage of the leopard in, in the set and projecting it against Cary Grant's performance <laughs> um, I yeah. feel like he used that in his
0: performance for his
1: character yeah you believe he's scared of it <laughs> Um, And, you know, he is also uh, an iconic uh, actor, so he has the acting chops. And watching this, it just makes you wish Superman had been big enough that uh, he could have played Superman in his prime. Because seeing him as a schedule, you're like, oh, that's Clark Kent. (laughs) There's Clark Kent walking across the screen. That's what I
0: always thought of when I saw him. Is like, okay, this looks like Clark Kent. But it also felt like I knew he should be Superman, so it felt like not, not the really convincing, oh, this guy is a
1: dweeb. It's like, oh, this is Superman pretending to be a dweeb. Yeah, and in his other roles, you know Cary Grant could play the superhero if superheroes had been a thing for him to be playing in, you know, the 1930s. Um, uh, yeah, he, he, I think he would have been uh, like fan casting any actor of any era to play Superman and Clark Kent. I think Cary Grant has to be mentioned, at least, if not the choice. So uh, Hepburn and Grant also co-starred together in uh, three other films, Sylvia Scarlet, Holiday, and The Philadelphia Story. Um and the last bit of trivia that um I saw mentioned in several places as I was looking up stuff about bring it baby that Susan Davis, the Catherine Hepburn character, has been identified as one of the earliest examples of the trope of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Have you heard this term, Andrew?
0: I I definitely have.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a more recent, uh more recently identified character, which tends to be um like a hyper Inter- intriguing but available female character that advances a male character's life in some way but doesn't the, the female character doesn't seem to have their own agenda uh, they're, they're just there accompanying uh, having crazy pushing, adventures yeah pushing the male character into crazy adventures um, and there's uh, some pushback on the idea of that trope in general uh, you can find lots of lists of examples but um, this character once people started to talk about it was one that uh people lashed onto saying, well, this this might be the first version of it.
0: Yeah. Right, and well, I think the idea um is like embodied in, in a movie like this where you have, okay, the the man has a standard, typical, boring life, and then this woman arrives and brings so much fun and vigor and energy that it creates fun for him. And that is kind of her function in the story is to create fun and take him out of his his you know black and white gray
1: tone life into this fun energetic adventure and he is transformed in a different place in his life at the end and she is largely the same character um is often what what happens with these manic pixie dream girl uh type characters yeah Uh, she's there there, to you know fall in love with him and change him a little bit yeah and there there's debate and criticism of this trope and which characters actually align with it that we're not going to get into entirely here. Um, but when, once I heard it described, I was like, okay, I can see how she gets lumped in with, with that kind of character. Um, all right. Before we move on listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special QuickCasts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office, which is not going to be terribly interesting. Uh, At at the time of this recording, we're in March, and let's just say uh, amongst the least of the concerns of the coronavirus impact is that the the box office is going to be an entirely different beast for the next couple months um, as we're all figuring this out. So all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now on to the plot summary. And I think this plot summary captures some of the fun zaniness of the film, but it does not deliver on particularly Hepburn's performance, which you need to find footage of her delivering some of these lines. And it's one of those where you're like, how did she memorize that? And how did she say it so fast? Like, how and so comprehensively, Mm -hmm. where like you're not saying what did she say, you're just enjoying what she's saying and the speed at which it's being delivered with great clarity.
0: Yeah, if if there's anything incomprehensible about it, it is not how the things are said, it's just how fast they are said.
1: Yeah, it it definitely feels, um, for modern audiences, I think, I think like Sorkin esque, right? The uh, you know, just this, but maybe faster, or or um, also Gilmore Girls, right? Uh, you know, where there's uh, very fast like the the conversation is more quick-witted than humans actually are in real life <laughs> like no one can make these comebacks or uh, these double entendres or these puns uh, and have it flow as though it's just a constant stream from their mouth but when you watch this performance it feels natural even though it's completely unnatural to be able to do that kind of uh you know that, that to speak in that way uh, in casual conversation
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah and like the 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 driving force of this is the interactions of the people like the plot like you said comes from a short story but then when you fill it with all of these personal
1: interactions it fills up yeah definitely all right so david huxley is a paleontologist who has been working to complete a brontosaurus skeleton for four years but he lacks one bone and intercostal clavicle He's also engaged to be married to Alice Swallow, uh, and he is also supposed to impress Elizabeth Random so that she will donate one million dollars to the museum. He's a very mild mannered man with a lot happening around him in these, you know, at this moment in his life Uh, while playing golf with like the mildest of manners. Yes, he's he's the classic um, absent minded intellectual type um, that Uh, isn't going to socialize, isn't going to be the big presence at a party or anything like that. Like he's just there (laughs) Um, and wishes he was with his, his uh, dinosaur bones building the Brontosaurus skeleton. Um, But in order to try and get that $1 million donation, he uh, goes to play golf with Elizabeth randoms lawyer. Uh, but while he's there, David meets Susan Vance when she plays his golf ball. So they're out on the golf golf course. He His ball slices. When he goes to reclaim it, uh, Susan Vance is just about to swing. Uh, despite his protestations and through lots of very rapid wordplay, she insists it really doesn't matter anyway, and she plays on with his ball. Soon, David is swept up in Susan's wake as they keep encountering each other uh, over the, the subsequent hours. Um, Susan's brother, Mark, sends Susan a tame leopard named uh, baby for her to take to their wealthy aunt. The leopard becomes especially calm when it hears the song. I can't give you anything but love baby. Um, So often during this film, (laughs) Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant are singing. I can't give anything uh, but love. uh, I can't give you anything but love baby uh, to a leopard. and It is just, So absurd, but somehow works uh, wonderfully in this. David is convinced that he's blown his chance at the million dollar donation, uh, but he has received his intercostal clavicle in the mail, so now he's going to be able to complete his uh, brontosaurus skeleton, uh, and then happily get married. Um, However, Susan mistook David for a zoologist and she calls him to help her transport baby to her aunt's farm in Connecticut. While he is refusing to do this, she pretends the leopard has attacked her. So he rushes over to help and he is carrying his package with the intercostal clavicle with him. David finds Susan unharmed and tries to storm out, but he is manipulated into driving with her to the farm. Uh, It's, it's almost just like this is going to happen. And the reasons why it happens don't, don't matter. (laughs) Right. He's, he's going on this trip with Susan, but He ends up going on the trip. Yeah. Uh, And we, as an audience, get the sense that Susan is falling for David uh, romantically. At the farm, baby is put into a horse stall, but she's going to get out of there before long. A family dog named George steals the intercostal clavicle and buries it so uh, uh, David can't leave. And we see Susan and David following the dog around looking for its hiding spots. Uh, Susan's aunt comes home and thinks David is a crazy person, which is unfortunate as this is Elizabeth random who has that million dollars to donate to the museum. Um, There's lots of confusion with local police force and, and neighbors uh, that, that get involved seeing uh, Susan and David out looking for this leopard and believing that they are crazy people. Um, But at the same time, a local zoo has a dangerous leopard that has attacked its trainer that is being transported in a cage. When Susan sees it, she thinks this is baby, and she goes and releases that leopard from the cage. So now there's a tame leopard and a dangerous leopard running around, and of course everyone thinks they are seeing the wrong one. If they think it's the dangerous one, it's baby. If they think it's a baby, it's the dangerous one. Um, a local sheriff soon arrests Susan and David, and because they've been going, uh, because they have been going through people's yards looking for a leopard, and the sheriff thinks these are just a couple of crazy people now. Susan pretends to be a criminal. So the sheriff takes her out of her cell to go get her confession, but she immediately escapes. Uh, More improbable insanity occurs. And soon every character that we've seen is in the jail at the end, as well as the dog, George and the leopard baby, Then Susan returns. Remember she escaped and she is dragging a leopard on a leash, just tugging and dragging this angry leopard that's snarling. uh, And everyone else realizes that that is the dangerous leopard that she has. She thought it was just baby, the tame leopard. So George has a moment of bravery where he saves Susan from the leopard and gets it into a jail cell. Now we cut to the museum where David is back to work on his brontosaurus skeleton. His wedding has been called off entirely. Uh, Susan, returns with the intercostal clavicle saying that George dug it up and put it in her shoes. David thanks her, but still blames her for ruining his chance at the million-dollar donation. Susan has climbed up a ladder next to the brontosaurus skeleton, and David is standing up on some scaffolding next to it. Uh, and she reveals that her aunt gave her the million dollars, and she is going to donate it to the museum. So he will get his million-dollar donation. Uh, at this point, she falls off the ladder uh that she was she had climbed up and she destroys the brontosaurus skeleton david catches her before she falls and it's a really impressive wide shot of uh i don't know if it's audrey hepburn or a stunt double but someone on top of the brontosaurus as you get a wide shot of the entire skeleton collapsing and Carrie Grant or maybe a stunt double grabbing her and holding her up and pulling her up. Uh, you see it all happen in a, in a very wide angle shot where you're like, Oh, they really filmed that. It was not like tricks through editing. Um, and he, he pulls her up and then they declare their love for each other. The end.
0: If only that captured the charm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I said, the, the, so much of this is in the wit, uh, uh, and dialogue and also the performance, uh, particularly of Audrey Hepburn. Um, Now, Andrew, this is, for me, I think the first screwball comedy I ever saw. Um, Do you remember, uh, like, any other screwball comedies? I know our parents enjoy screwball comedies, so they were definitely, like, It Happened One Night was around in our house. Um,
0: I mean, I'd probably seen some Marx Brothers before I saw this.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. And, I I mean, those sort of fit in, but the the romance is never really driving the plot uh, terribly much in the Marx Brothers. so, yeah, uh, and so Bruce,
0: this very well may have been the first one I saw.
1: Yeah, um, screwball comedies tend to be romantic stories with a female driving the plot. So in this case, Audrey Hepburn, but also played very broadly in a way that somewhat lampoons, but simultaneously embraces the rom- the romance genre. Um, and then like some of the stuff, the elements that we've said, uh, you know, the the fast paced dialogue, the um, some physical comedy, some really uh, clever physical comedy that happens. Uh, a lot of farce farces happen. Um, so I mentioned it happened one night or um, his girl Friday is another example of this, um, this type, uh, type of um, movie. Now I watched this with uh, my wife, Emily in preparation for this podcast. And at the end, she's like, oh, I don't know if I liked that one as much, particularly at, like at the end when she breaks the brontosaurus, she's like, mm. like, she's, <laughs> She's not a terribly likable character. Like, like in some ways, it's almost like a Michael Scott character, where like it's funny to watch. But if this person was in your life, you would be overwhelmed constantly. Um. Oh
0: yes, yeah. They they balance that out, I, I think, kind of fantastically. Where there's moments where you're like, oh, I enjoy this person so much, and then there's a lot of a lot of moments where you're like, this person is so overbearing, over the top, over much. You know, it it would be so exhausting to try and maintain any type of relationship with this person. Yes.
1: But so I was saying, I was watching this with my wife. And when she said that, I said, the only DVD, like we own hundreds of DVDs because I study pop culture. I do this podcast. We own a lot of DVDs in our family. She owned one when we got married. So she added one DVD to our collection Um, (laughs) when when, uh, (laughs) our household joined. And it was the Barbara Streisand uh, movie, What's Up Doc? Which is... A screwball comedy that is remarkably, like, I'm not saying it's a ripoff. It is, though, very much in this mold of, um, you know, Barbara Streisand being this um, absurd larger-than-life character that completely overtakes this very dry, serious man's life and leads him on an insane adventure. Uh, with a, a crazy MacGuff- a MacGuffin I can't remember what it is off the top of my head but it's not the intercostal clavicle but it's basically they're chasing an intercostal clavicle uh, as mm-hmm. insane things happen and I said that is one of your favorite movies and it's the only DVD you added and it is basically this movie and she pauses. she's like yeah but she didn't ruin his life's work at the end like that was just the bridge too far <laughs> was her breaking <laughs> of the brontosaurus skeleton I was like okay this this woman is just too much at this point which you were kind of feeling <laughs> that through the whole, the whole movie um But I just thought that was a funny reaction because screwball comedies, we don't have as many being made now. Like the last one that I think really fits into this mold is there was that George Clooney movie, Leatherheads, where he was trying to do the classic screwball comedy. But uh, I can't think of Mm. anything else. And that was that was over a decade ago at this point. Um, uh, But I miss it. Like, I think there would be I mean I guess Leatherheads didn't really tear up the box office at all it wasn't like a big hit it's I I, I, this may be the first mention of Leatherheads in a very long time by anyone on earth Uh, (laughs) but I I feel like a well done screwball comedy could be very well received right now it's possible I'm trying to picture one and I don't know
0: you know like I, I can't conceive of one because it's been so long
1: yeah, and so much of it would have to come down to the casting and the performance. Like, who who can deliver this kind of law, uh, dialogue and also make a character that is, um, in the abstract, doing a lot of unlikable things, likable and redeemable in the audience's eyes, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, because she she really, I mean, she is so much that it's like, okay, I, I don't think you can like her. And she is so unearnedly confident in a lot of things um i think maybe audacious is is the right term for her she is so audacious
1: yes and and, that you just like what are you gonna do about her and this is balanced by like i said every character is kind of a cartoon character like like an exaggerated version of reality and that's true for the cary grant character it's just his character would be quiet and not interrupting anyone else's life But, like, he wouldn't be a great friend to have either. (laughs) Um, uh, The David Hawksley character is also played fairly broadly. Um, It's just going in the other extreme from Susan, whereas Susan is taking over his life. He would never interrupt anyone else's life if he could avoid it.
0: Yeah, and, like, there's a moment where she um, steals his car and drives away with him standing on the side of it saying, wait, this is my car.
1: And she, she like, simultaneously acknowledges these facts, but just does not care. Uh, same with, like, the golf ball. Like, that's my golf ball. He's like, okay. Yeah. And? <laughs> you know, well, uh, maybe it is, but I'm pretty sure it's mine, and I'm just going to proceed. Uh-huh. And, and then, like... And I... When he's trying to prove that it's his golf ball like he he's like he's like he describes the different brands of golf balls and he's like my brand has this symbol which is a little little round circle and then he picks up the golf ball and shows her he's like it's a little round circle she's like well of course it's a circle how else would it roll <laughs> and uh yeah like, and there's so much moments... dismissiveness yes yeah dismissiveness maybe is is a good good description there um and, and not dismissive of him just dismissive of reality yes that that other people count Mm-hmm. because we see her do similar things where like she's trying to learn to tr- do a trick with olives and she just walks up to someone in the restaurant and reaches down and takes olives off their plate to try and do uh, a little magic trick with olives that she was just taught um and uh i like i i don't want her to make it sound unlikable because there is a fascinating charmingness about her as you watch this Mm -hmm. this character like just steamroll through these scenes where i i I don't want us to to say like she's she's unlikable or anything like that and and david does need someone to bring him on an adventure (laughs) like he's he was not heading towards a happy life (laughs) um with the marriage like the hints we get about the marriage that was about to take place it's kind of like that's that's not gonna be good marriage um for him so uh her taking over his life is you know going to to send him on a better better path um, and in all, in the midst of all this overwhelming too muchness, as you, as you put it, uh, you, you do kind of like her, uh, to watch on the screen again, <laughs> not like I want her to um, in my house.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think, I think, um, in Brooklyn nine, nine, some of the characters get kind of in the territory of that balance of, oh, these people are ridiculous and would be terrible to spend time around, but they're kind of charming. Like Jake Peralta. Um, The the Andy Samberg character in Brooklyn Nine Nine, like, okay, he's maybe in that territory where it's like, oh man, this guy's a lot to to handle and like not competent in a lot of things, but there's a little bit of charm to him and he can get some things done.
1: Well, I I think there's a lot of this style that we see in in um, sitcoms and a lot of the Michael Shore sitcoms because, like, The Office is just populated with these characters that are really, you know, not grounded in reality. There's, there's a lot of exaggerated cartoon characters, you know, being played in live action on shows like the office. So we focused a lot
0: on um, her character. Should we focus a little bit more on, on David and how he kind of changes and comes out of a shell throughout this story? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So for Susan, like the transformation is finding her match. Like she actually falls in love with, him and you get the feeling that she was the very independent free spirit that had no interest in having someone else in her life previously so that's the transformation we see for her but like as far as her characteristics she's still largely going to be the same person moving forward but david i think we see some some difference
0: yeah i'd say for her the main change is that she does start to acknowledge at least one other person if not other people (laughs) And and their significance and um, how they are impacted by her actions a little bit. She doesn't necessarily change her actions, but she recognizes that somebody else is impacted in some way. She might not recognize that it's negative, but she recognizes it. Um, And that's kind of when she admits that she is in love with him, whereas she's been accusing him of being in love with her the entire time.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah um and his character like that we see at the beginning he is so like buttoned down in terms of his his costuming like he's wearing a lab coat and and you know button up shirt and, and like he's just buttoned down in every way that you can imagine but also emotionally like there's no emotion <laughs> in his uh you know it's the day of his wedding uh you know, or or the day before his wedding it's one of the greatest moments of his professional life he's trying to get a million dollars for the museum. And it's almost like a monotonous sameness in terms of his discussion of these things with like little glimmers and peaks um, of uh, you know, that there's more going on underneath that, but really mm-hmm. his, he he's maintaining that sameness. Um, at, yeah. It in seems like affect.
0: he, he seems like he is probably behaving in the same level of stress that he feels every day of his life you know it this is not a notable increase in his anxiety level this is where he lives right as crazy right. as that, things get he is at
1: the same pace constantly it's like oh this is just how he lives his life and he's like constantly doing little like little mutters to himself and that's where you see you know some hints like um when uh, his wife or his fiance is there, and is like mentioning, you know that there, it's their wedding day, and then he's like, and then we'll go on our honeymoon, and she's like, no, 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 you, you can't have a honeymoon; you have your career to worry about. And he's like, well, you know, everyone has has a honeymoon, dear, and uh, and she's like, no, we're we're gonna focus on you completely. And He's like, okay, oh, well, I I was looking more, and she's like, nothing needs to change about our relationship. He's Like, not not nothing at all. <laughs> Just the, you know, it's, <laughs> it's it's like through muttering is where you see that there's more going on that he's not willing to express right now. And Susan is able to drive him to express some of those feelings (laughs) much more vocally. Yeah. With his muttering, it's like
0: he is saying it so that he can say that he said it, not that he's saying it so that it can
1: actually be a discussion. There's no assertiveness. Like, like we we talk about how Susan, um, like as a character, like steamrolls through scenes, he is being steamrolled by his fiance, you know, in that opening scene as well. Um, And, um, what, one thing that Susan is able to bring about in terms of transforming him as a character is he does start to stand up for himself, uh, you know, as, as this day goes on and, and plans are going awry and his intercostal clavicle is, is stolen by the dog. Um, like he starts to make demands about his needs and from the short version of his life that were given pre-Susan, you get the sense that he, he was never going to do that ever.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's... I'm trying to think, like, what is it that causes the transformation, right? What is the element that is injected into his life that that causes him to start doing things differently?
1: Well, so at first, there's, like, the high levels of exasperation with Susan. But then, um, like, even with that, it's still a lot of the same, David, that we saw earlier. Like, one of the first big, bold moments that we see... Is when he thinks Susan is in danger <laughs> from this leopard uh, and he runs and, out and he's, he, and runs he out. goes okay. across
0: town to to help her
1: yeah that's like the the biggest physical moments we've seen before are a couple Pratt Falls where he fell down um you know that that was it uh as far as his his big physical moments, but his like breakneck sprint that's like one of the first big decisions followed by action. That we get from him, like even him being on the golf course, it's because he was told to go to the golf course, not because he wanted to go golfing. Um, yeah, and so he has this; he does have a core of
0: caring about other people, or at least about an other person when they seem in grave danger, which maybe he has not interacted with enough in his life. Yes, and yeah. and so something about danger brings something out of him.
1: Well, and I think it's also. Um, even though he's not ready to admit himself, and as an audience, I think we're we're told first that we see Susan falling for him, not him falling for Susan. I think he has, um, if not a romantic, but like a social interest in Susan, right? Like he is concerned uh, about her to a level beyond which we see him expressing concern for anyone else. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he, uh, like, and I think social concern is a, a good way to say it because they they spend time at a party and she gets into a position to be embarrassed and he is immediately trying to shield her oh, from embarrassment. Yeah.
1: He he tries to help her immediately. Then, um, when... uh, e-
0: even though she has been in no way pleasant to him, like he has every reason to want her to be embarrassed, and he immediately says, "No, I'm not going to let that happen." And you get the sense, like, maybe it's just sort of a nobility that he has, but it does seem almost specific to her it's it's like um it's like a protective um intent that he has because he sees that she is not able to handle something about this situation she doesn't have the grace for this situation and so he's going to help her
1: yeah there is um uh, this protectiveness like you said um which is both i think some inherent um like uh, I, uh, what's the word not nobility but just just like a sense of social grace and and um he's a gentleman like there's, an, there's an inherent goodness right in him so he's gonna yeah. try and prevent her even though he could it would been very easy to be dismissive of her and allow her to have her embarrassing moment after uh everything that she'd already done to him in the first 15 minutes of the film um <laughs> Uh, but but he does protect her from that embarrassment when her dress rips uh and you know he he's gonna walk close behind her so no one else can see her dress is ripped uh and then he's concerned about her physical safety and is willing to rush off there um but then i think it is important for his character development that it's not just uh like a social or even like a burgeoning romantic interest that is what's uh going to cause him to act it is uh like he, he's going to become assertive over his intercostal clavicle, <laughs> this dinosaur bone that has disappeared, and he's gonna become um a, 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 uh, more gentle. Like I'm I'm going to do some things that are actually like bad social grace. Like I'm gonna ignore other conversations, just walk away because I've got a clue as to where I need to go look.
0: Yeah, so his transformation is not just in that in the interactions with her, it is a a transformation, right? He is growing and changing um because of the interactions with her. Mm-hmm and i think maybe it it is like the fact that his interactions with her have led him to feel that surge of intensity um about you know the the dangers to her the the social and then um conceptual physical dangers to her um and that's that's how the finale goes is he's engaging because there's a physical danger and she has gotten herself into real danger with the with the with the ferocious leopard um but then he translates that into, okay, well, I can feel intensity about this, not just for her. I can feel it about the things I have passion for, right? He finds his passion um, mm-hmm. for for the uh, paleontology, right? This is the thing that I've really cared about, and I am I am going to fight for it for once in my life.
1: Yeah, and um, this is, like, he needed a Susan <laughs> in his life to be able to reach these points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, he would be better, he would be better off,
0: even if they did not end up together romantically, he would be better off for having had this adventure. He would be more assertive, he would be more agentive, he would um, be more passionate in in his interactions. And I think that's one of the things that um, you see with his character in, uh, like, it's not the moral of the story, but it, it's saying, look, being, you know, polite and and mild-mannered is fine, but don't be totally toast. you should have... Some some passion and some intensity in some things.
1: Yeah, he's not willing to stand up for himself initially, and by the final act, he's standing up for himself. Hmm. Um. Now, in in praising this film, we've I think we've we've mentioned several times the dialogue and Hepburn's delivery, but I also do want to acknowledge there's some fantastic farce, um, just plot wise farce <laughs> uh, that is able to get built in to individual scenes but also the plot as a whole um yeah they do a number of small farces which mm -hmm. is a small misunderstanding yes but then there's the big major one in the final act with you have two leopards running around you have mistaken identities happening you have everyone getting locked up by the local sheriff and every time he calls back to the house to verify that these people um are who they claim they are. The person who answers was like, well, no, I saw them in bed, but everyone's been sneaking out of bed and going on these crazy adventures because of these leopards. So then once mm-hmm. he gets confirmed that, no, that's not the person. Well, you're staying in jail. You're obviously all criminals. um <laughs> So, and then uh, and yeah. then she plays that one,
0: which is, I think that's one of the best sequences in the film is when she is convincing the sheriff. um And is there a detective? I mean, there's like three officials there. Mm-hmm. That she is convincing that she's part of a a mob, a gang.
1: yeah, yeah. And her transformation in terms of the accent she uses, the line delivery, her voice, but also her physicality—it's like, oh, yeah. The way she handles the cigarette
0: and everything, her she she is playing. Oh, it's like I'm confident in a jail cell. Like you guys are fine. Like, and she just—it's so convincing, so quickly. I'm like, why is this character able to do this so well?
1: Yes, but also respect to Catherine Hepburn for being able to play the kind of, uh, in some ways, ditzy socialite. Like, I don't want, but but absent, or or, uh, frivolous socialite, maybe. But then a very hard-nosed criminal that is convincing, like you said. (laughs) Like, you understand why the detective buys it, even though you're kind of laughing at the ridiculousness of the disparity between who she was in the previous scene and who she's playing right now.
0: And she has, um, and she has like just enough knowledge to share with them that it's convincing, right? She's got just enough of the right terms to use.
1: Though <laughs> Carrie Grant is like in the background muttering, "He's like she just heard that on a movie." <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> like this um, is just Hollywood hokum. <laughs> and there,
0: is, and there is a really phenomenal moment um, where she is playing all of the the fast talking in the conversation, and she is also staging her getaway as she does it. Right, she um is distracting them with her fast talking. It's like, it's, it's like a pickpocket distracting you or a a stage magician distracting Mm -hmm. you with one thing while building up to the trick where she um, gets the cigarette and she's talking to him. And then she gets to open the window so that she can, you know, blow the smoke out of the window. And she starts sitting on the windowsill. And as soon as they're all looking away, she just pulls her legs to the other side of the windowsill and disappears. It's
1: amazing. It it was really well done. Um, I, I, if I have, a flaw in the film, which I understand it's a great film. I respect his selection. It's one of the hundred greatest films of all time. The, the, like everything from when they're first in the jail cell to when she finally drags in, maybe I feel like the editing or the pace could have been picked up on some of those, except for this sequence that you're describing. Everything about that sequence is perfect. Um, But it does start to get, uh, le- like the level of farce it starts to be like okay i we need to move along towards the conclusion because this is just getting so ridiculous in in some of the build-up uh, that that happens there um but on the whole i you know that that's just such a minor quibble um about what is you know, one of the greatest films right you know i it deserves this place in the national film registry um because of uh the magic they were able to capture bringing all these things together
0: Mm-hmm. Um. do you want to talk do you want to draw in any of the other side characters because it's really like these are the only two main characters in the whole film
1: yeah, everyone, everyone else, else is, is a side, a side character. character and also they are kind of like the b-level simpson side characters where they're identified by a single trait and that's all we get about them <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so you've got uh the big game hunter who does crazy animal calls he,
0: he- He's one of my favorites. He was the first side character that I was going to think about because he goes through and he's doing all these things about it. it's like, well, here's how this animal call goes and he does the leopard call and somebody's trying to learn from him and baby actually makes the leopard call. And he's like, "Oh, yeah. that was very good." <laughs>
1: yeah. Um and then you also have um you know, some other character types, So like the bumbling small town sheriff who's trying to get the big the big break. Um mm-hmm you know and it's really just getting played by everyone everyone around him um you've got the uh you know the, the family matriarch with with the aunt uh you know the wealthy matriarch um who's looking for somewhere to to give some money it's never really made clear why she wants to get rid of this 1 million dollars she just does <laughs> yeah um, it's
0: it's you know a plot contrivance that and and then they make that the connection point um an additional connection point between the main characters
1: there's the psychiatrist. The, the, is it a German psychiatrist? I'm trying to remember what accent it was. Oh, now.
0: I, I think I think it would be a German psychiatrist. I mean, it's hard to imagine that a movie in the 30s would make a psychiatrist not a German psychiatrist for a yeah. broad character.
1: Yeah, for broad, community. you know, it's it's it's
0: going to be Sigmund Freud, basically. Uh huh.
1: Yeah, and and so you you have a lot of these which all work, but like none of them are really like fully formed characters that uh, you know have their own internal lives these are just bits of the farce uh you know uh, pieces mm-hmm. on the chessboard to be moved around uh and a very there's a Mr. Mr. Peabody way.
0: I'm sorry M- what was Mr. That? Peabody I just remember because every time he was getting distracted I'll be with you in a minute Mr. Peabody <laughs> right
1: yeah and, and it works um so uh, this story it's both driven by like the absurd plot elements of a classic farce. And then the very quick witted dialogue um, that Catherine Hepburn and, and Cary Grant are able to deliver over the top of each other sometimes. And, and thinking back on it, I'm like, I don't know how I understood everything because they do talk over the top of each other, but I never felt lost um, in, in the storytelling. Uh, and, they They uh intertwine those two comedic styles really well together, mhm yeah, I agreed I mean
0: it's it's one of those things like I really don't know if our discussion of it is conveying a tenth of the enjoyment that can be had from actually watching it,
1: yeah, um, just circling back one more time to to Susan, who I think is. I, well, it, it's interesting to say because often in this podcast when we talk about like the characters that transform are the ones that we are more interesting. and We really want to dig into. I think Susan is more interesting one to think about, and and um, it drives a lot more of the comedy, and, and certainly is is moving the plot along uh, through her, her, through her actions. Why do you think that is? That it's not the character that's going to be engaging in the transformation that is the one that that stands out more. And particular, I mean, th- these are both great great actors, right? Uh, But, you know, Cary Grant is often like the leading man for this era of Hollywood, but I feel like he's overshadowed shadowed by Katherine Hepburn in this movie.
0: Mm-hmm. I think part of it is um, the energy, right? They went so mild-mannered with Cary Grant that his energy is so toned down, even in the moments where he gets to do something, it's a, a flash, and then he's back to mild manners. Um, and she is so high energy the whole time that she she's just sucking so much of your attention in. Um, it's hard to focus on his performance because her performance is so
1: energetic. It's popping. I agree with that, which I, I think was a necessary balance. Like if you had um, a really... Energetically broad character instead of the mild mannered broad character, like think of like a Jim Carrey against, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, you know something like that. Like it would just be so overwhelming for the entire film. I think like it it, it was the right choice to have Cary Grant reign in, um, and and then like have those moments when he's screaming, you know, all of a sudden where he you know he bursts out and and
0: yeah, and it's kind of amazing that he pulls it in so much because it's Cary Grant, right? He he is. You know, one of the leading men of all time. And he just shuts himself down so small, so tight. You're like, this guy? Are you, <laughs> like, are you sure, though? Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of it is, is how much they had him rein it in. Because even if he had been uh, a little more casual or a little more cool, you would be totally drawn into him. But he played it so mild. So another thing that I think is one of the reasons that that her energy draws you in and and she becomes almost more interesting is because you see the balance of of her audacity uh, along with like, I'm not sure how she's still okay. Like, is this the first time she's been to jail or has she gotten out of it before? Because it seems like she should have gotten herself into a lot of trouble. And so you kind of have this mysterious, mysterious idea about Okay, but what's her backstory? Like, how much trouble has she gotten herself into with this personality of hers?
1: Well, and we we see how David needs her to kind of bring him out of his shell. I think she does need him to tone herself down a little bit because – we see near car accidents with her. We see her fall into uh, a creek because she thinks it's something she just walked across, but it's actually super deep. We see <laughs> her uh, fall off the di- the ladder onto the dinosaur and the, the dinosaur bones break beneath her. Uh, like She you- almost
0: captures a, a ferocious leopard.
1: Right. Uh, she's in constant danger in the way that she's living her life and uh, a slight calming influence is going to do wonders for her longevity as a human,
0: yeah, you just kind of <laughs> wonder it's like, okay, but like, how long can this mess last <laughs> yeah without a calming influence, and so and you kind of wonder it's like, how has she made it this far
1: yeah no I, I like that yeah and and, and all of that I think is why um the the extremes work so well, um
0: yeah it's it's like when um when you see somebody who just has all these stories about them, all these legends, like you get the sense is like, okay, there's gotta be so many stories of her, like in, in 15 minutes in the first 15 minutes, she's had stuff. That's worth three different dinnertime stories for somebody to tell. <laughs> so how many stories must her
1: life be made of? I completely agree. I, I think that's a good point. And it's why I, we're kind of happy to see them together at the end. Um, because despite the uh, how, how, how differently uh, how, how different energy levels they operate at, they're going to be good for each other. Um mm-hmm. They're going to be better together than they had been individually when we first met them. Right. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 64, when we talked about Frasier, which is uh, a TV show that really uh, loved to indulge in a good farce, uh, or episode number 186, when we talked about North by Northwest, which saw Cary Grant in a different kind of leading man role uh, and what he was called on to perform in Bringing Up Baby. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or else on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at J Dorowski. Our producer Andrew is at DisMinute, and our Facebook fan, pa- fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening and we'll, we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. I'm sorry. I need to get a drink of water. Is the lag getting worse? No problem.